Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Uh, good morning. Has, uh, has an experience ever moved you in such a way that uh, you just burst out talking about it at the slightest provoking? I bet that's happened to <clears throat> most of us, if not all of us. When Marianne and I were dating long distance, a lot of years ago now, I lived in Philadelphia. She lived in Houston. I, I, I got to see her very infrequently. And after one occasion of uh, spending a weekend with her in Houston, I, I came back to my house in Philadelphia and walked in the front door uh, to talk to my roommates, Greg and, and Kyle. And they paused for a minute from playing video games and uh, asked me how things went over the weekend and I just erupted and began to tell them all about it, all that I was sensing and feeling and experiencing. And, and I think it was probably um, a bit much because after my tirade of professions of love and longing for my wife, they said basically cool and went back to playing Halo. And um, that romantic love often does that, doesn't it? It causes outbursts of affection. We want, to, we want to tell people about what we're experiencing and feeling and thinking. All experiences of joy do that in one way or another. Listen to what C.S. Lewis wrote in his classic book, Mere Christianity. He says, quote, all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy, he writes, because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. 
This spontaneous overflow of praise is how the Apostle Paul begins this letter, the letter to the Ephesians. I call it an outburst. This is an outburst from Paul, an outburst of joy, an outburst of awe at what God does for us. God rescues us. God rescues us. The only real God is a God of love and grace who saves us, who rescues us out of sin and out of darkness and out of death. That is Christianity. Ephesians is one of the best books in all the Bible to get an overview of that. An overview of God's work in salvation. It's about what God has done for sinners in Jesus Christ. It's about how God forms a people for himself, the church, to manifest his glory. It's about how to live practically in response to God's gracious love. The Ephesians is actually a letter, as I've mentioned. It's, it's not really a book. It was written by the Apostle Paul from a prison cell in the city of Rome, probably in around A.D. 61 or 62. And I want you to imagine this. Paul was in a dark cell in some Roman prison, almost certainly bound by a metal chain either to the wall or to another Roman soldier. And Paul almost certainly dictated this letter to another young man who would have been a scribe, furiously writing down what Paul spews out as he bursts out in praise and joy and excitement. Paul wrote the letter from a prison cell, not just to the church in Ephesus, which was a city of about 250,000 people, which in that day was a massive size in modern day Turkey, but it's almost certainly a circular letter. What that means is that Ephesians was almost certainly intended to be circulated from one church to another church to another church to another church. One of the reasons we know that is because Ephesians is the most general of all of the letters of Paul. In this letter, he's not really addressing specific situations that a specific church was dealing with, like he is, for example, in Galatians or in First and Second Corinthians. He's being general, which is why this is such a great introduction, Ephesians, to the Christian faith. It's also a great introduction to what we aspire to as just one expression of the global church. Here at Christ Church, above all else, listen, we hope that this will be a place where the gospel is celebrated and savored. That is why we started the church. We want to savor God's grace. The gospel changes everything. We want our collective lives together to be a huge outburst of praise at God's gracious rescue plan in Jesus Christ and in his spirit. And so as we move into this building and this new season in our church's history, one of the reasons I wanted to study Ephesians is because it helps us know again, what is our animating focus and vision and aim and goal. Verse three summarizes it perfectly. Our vision is to bless the God and father 
of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. That's the heart of Paul's outburst. And I want it to be the heart of ours too. Paul's outburst at God's salvation, verses 3 through 14, really is one huge, long sentence. You English teachers would have flunked him without even a second thought. It's run on after run on. It's loaded with super important doctrinal truths, and we can't cover all of them. So I'm going to give you an overview this morning in three parts. First, God rescues us. That's by far going to be the longest point. So when I go like 20 minutes on point one, don't freak out, okay? Uh, Point two, on what grounds does God rescue us? Point three, for what purpose does God rescue us? So let's go through these amazing verses together and see what the Lord has for us. Paul's main idea is that first, God rescues us. That's the core point that he's making. The one true God rescues us out of our plight, out of our problem, the problem of sin, the problem of death, the problem of separation from the God who is our life and our joy. And if you'll look at the text, you'll see, I hope, that God is the one who does it. Notice throughout the verses that it is God's activity that is highlighted. We are passive recipients. He is active initiator. Paul describes how God rescues us by writing about his Trinitarian work, the work of the father, verses four through six, the work of the son, verses seven through 12, the work of the spirit, verse 13 and 14. Let's look at that a little bit together in, in more detail. First, we see in how God rescues us that God, the father chooses He chooses us. Paul writes, verse 4, Even as he, the Father, chose us in him, that's Christ, before the foundation of the world. Again, verse 5, In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Verse 11, In him... Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All of these verses are basically making the same point. Listen, God's rescue began before any of us were ever born and apart from anything we ever do. God's rescue began before any of us were ever born and apart from anything we ever do. That's the idea behind that phrase, before the foundation of the world in verse 4. It's also what the word predestined means. Think about that prefix, pre, beforehand, destined, destiny. It means that God beforehand determines out of his great love and mercy our destiny to be his adopted children, as Paul writes. So God's choice to save sinners like us and to set his loving affection on us is not determined in any way by our good behavior, by our good choices, or by our healthy spirituality. Rather, it's determined solely and only by him, according to the purpose of his will. Verse 4, 
according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Verse 11. How many of you, how many of you remember the, the children's game, Duck, Duck, Goose? Anybody remember that game? Here's the thing I remember about that game. When I was a kid, uh, friends in our you know, church youth group, well, not the youth group, earlier than that, would play all the time Duck, Duck, Goose. It's a bunch of kids sit in a circle and one person is selected to go around and tap each person on the head and say, Duck, Duck, Duck. And then when they select a goose, the goose has to get up and chase that person around the circle before that person can occupy the person they chose former seat. Here's what you learn. Here's what I learned playing Duck, Duck, Goose. You learn who likes you. When girls, pretty girls especially, would go around the circle, every boy was saying, what if she picks me? That would be amazing. If this girl says goose as she taps my head, that has to mean something. Maybe if you're the boy going around the circle, this is your opportunity to, in a very, you know, a very suave way, communicate to the girl that you've had eyes on. I'm I'm interested in you. Maybe we can, you know, get to know each other a little bit better. Goose, run. You determined based on the affection you had for a person, based on their characteristics, based on their beauty, based on all kinds of qualities that you are going to select them. But that's not what God does. He doesn't choose because there's something in those whom he chooses that is drawing him to us. He doesn't choose because there's something in us that is lovable or likable or commendable to him. Paul goes out of his way to say that he chooses because it was his will and his loving sovereign pleasure to do so. This was true of God's electing the people of Israel in the Old Testament. We read in the book of Deuteronomy, God say this to his people, the Lord, your God has chosen you. There's that language again, to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, but it is because the Lord loves you. That's true then of Israel. And it's true now of God's people. God saves by choosing. One other quick point. Look at what God chooses us for. Verse five, for adoption through Jesus Christ. So Paul's saying here, listen, this is amazing. God, by his sovereign will and completely by his own good pleasure, decided before any of you were ever born to make you a part of his family to make you a part of his family, to make you his sons and his daughters, to give you, in essence, full access to him. Notice it is in Christ that we're adopted. What that means is that if you've believed the gospel, you have as much access to God your father as Jesus Christ the son has access to God your father because you approach God in Christ. I wish I could show you the picture, but there's an amazing picture from presidential history of uh, when JFK, John F. Kennedy was president. There's this picture of him sitting at his desk, the resolute desk in the Oval Office. And uh, the picture's taken from a distance, enough of a distance that you can see underneath the desk, John F. Kennedy Jr. Sitting under his dad's desk while his dad is probably, you know, solving the Cuban Missile Crisis, hanging out and playing around. 
For anyone else in the world, it requires an appointment and all kinds of clearances to get to see the president, much less in the Oval Office. But for his son, he could approach him anytime he wanted because that was his dad. That is the kind of access God the Father grants his children. God loves you because he loves you. There's nothing you have done to earn his love. And there's nothing that you could ever do to earn his love. Because he freely chose to set his love on you way back before he even made the universe, you have full access to him and can approach him as a beloved child in Christ. Wow. God the Father chooses. Second, God the Son redeems. God the Son redeems us. That's what Paul tells us next. Now, there's all kinds of ways to describe what Jesus did. But Paul here gives, he gives pride of place to the concept of redemption. Look in verse 7. Paul says, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Redemption, that word means to buy back, to buy back. The connotation behind the word is that Jesus Christ liberates us from bondage. He purchases us back out of slavery. Jesus himself said, we read in the gospel of John, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. Anyone who sins is a slave to sin. Sin isn't primarily bad things that you do or say or think. Sin primarily is an enslaving master that binds us in its chains. Sin is a cruel tyrant that owns us from the day we're born. And we can't escape It's a prison of our own making that we will never, ever get out of, at least until Jesus comes along. He tells us in John chapter 8 that anyone who sins is a slave of sin. But then he says one verse later, if the son sets you free, you'll be free. You'll be free indeed. Jesus redeems us. He buys us out of slavery to sin, both to the guilt of sin and to the corruption and power of sin so that we're no longer guilty before God and we're no longer dominated by sin's enslaving influence. Can I be very direct with you? Uh, If you are not a Christian, you are a slave. If you're not a Christian, you are a slave. You're a slave to your own selfishness. You're a slave to your own corrupt desires and actions. You're under the cruel control of a power that you can't match, which is why you can't really experience the change you long for or the release you long for. You don't have that kind of strength. You can't break the chains, but Jesus can. How? How? Interestingly enough, uh, Gandhi. Gandhi said that um, basically every Eastern And Western religion all agree that humans are not free. That's something Gandhi said, that we're all slaves. And I think Gandhi was basically right. But but 
he says we're, we're, we're slaves to ego. That's why the world is miserable. And he says, Gandhi, that in Christianity, you have the way to be released. Here's how Gandhi said it. Through the example of Jesus. Did you hear me? Through the example of Jesus. Gandhi said, seeing who Jesus was and the kind of life he lived will liberate you because it moves and inspires you out of your own selfishness. Now, with all due respect to Gandhi, that doesn't work for me. When I look at Jesus's life and I'm told, model that, Jesus was perfect. Jesus never sinned. Jesus never was selfish. Jesus never was rude. Jesus never was inhospitable. If I'm being told you have to imitate that, that doesn't liberate me. That crushes me. That decimates me. Which is why Paul says, you're not liberated by his example. You're liberated by his sacrifice. Paul tells us it's redemption through his blood. We have redemption through Christ's sacrifice of himself on the cross, which delivers us out of bondage to our own sin. Jesus loves you that much. Wow. God, the spirit seals us. Paul writes about that in verse 13 and 14. Now, the spirit has many roles and many purposes. But here, Paul highlights the idea of the spirit as a seal. Verse 13. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, that word seal uh, refers to an action that was taken by ancient kings in which they would stamp a letter that was going in the king's name with his signet ring that had his seal upon it. And when someone saw the king's emblem or the king's seal engraved on a, a piece of letter that was being sent out, it verified the authority, the authenticity of the message which was being sent. So what Paul's saying is that God sends the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to verify to assure you of the authenticity of your experience if you've believed in Jesus Christ. The Spirit seals you. He helps you actually believe that these promises are true and real. He helps you actually appreciate that God really is that loving, that he really does rescue, that he really loves you, you personally. You specifically, and we need that. We need the Spirit's sealing, assuring power in our lives, even if we've been Christians for decades, because we're so often weak and frail and fickle in our faith. I read a story this week that was just striking to me. It's by, about a, a man named Max Dupree. Max Dupree was... Um, was the CEO of a large furniture company. And, and he tells this story. Let me just tell it from his perspective. He says this, my wife Esther and I had a granddaughter named Zoe who was born prematurely and uh, weighed one pound and seven ounces. So small that my wedding ring could slide up her arm to her shoulder. The neonatologist who first examined her told us that she had a 5 to 10% chance of living three days. When Esther and I scrubbed up for our first visit and saw Zoe in the NICU unit, she had two IVs in her navel, 
one in her foot, a monitor on each side of her chest, and a respirator tube and a feeding tube in her mouth. To complicate matters, Zoe's biological father had jumped ship a month before Zoe was born. Realizing this, he writes, a wise and caring nurse named Ruth gave me my instructions. She said this, for the next several months, at least, you're the surrogate father. I want you to come to the hospital every day to visit Zoe. And when you come, I would like you to rub her body and her legs and her arms with the tip of your finger. While you're caressing her, you should tell her over and over how much you love her because she has to be able to connect your voice to your touch. What does the Holy Spirit do? He connects God's voice by touching us, by reminding us through a personal, present, vibrant, lifeblood ministry that God really is that loving. The Holy Spirit connects God's voice to assure us, to remind us, to comfort us. Wow. God the Father chooses. God the Son redeems. God the Spirit seals. That's how God rescues. So second, on what grounds does God rescue us? On what grounds does God rescue us? I hope you're, I hope you're stunned at how God does this. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit working in perfect harmony to bring us out of the guilt of our sin and the power of our sin. It should stun us. So how can God do this? On what grounds does God rescue us? What motivates his heart to send Jesus to die and to send his spirit to touch us? Now, listen, this is the dividing point between the Christian faith and all other approaches to God. What is the answer? For Christianity, the ground upon which God rescues us, the motivation he has to do this is grace. Grace alone. Look at what Paul says. God elects us, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Jesus died for us, verse 7, according to the riches of his grace. Verse 8, God has lavished his grace upon us all in wisdom and insight. What motivates God to love you and to rescue you? It's that God is full of grace. Grace is undeserved favor. Actually, it's more than that. Grace is favor when you deserve the exact opposite. God, from before the world was made to this very second, has always loved you and will always love you. Not because you deserve it, but because he is gracious. That is the gospel. That is good news. God is rich in grace. And he rescues us from bondage to sin because of his own inner character, because of his own heart of mercy in Jesus. Now, listen, by nature, every single one of us lean in one of two directions when we hear that. Every single one of us lean in one of two directions. One direction is that we think we're too bad for grace. Maybe that's you. You think you're too bad for grace. God cannot love me. I can't approach him 
because of the massive, and I mean massive, mistakes I've made. I can't be loved by anyone, much less by a God who is holy and just and righteous because of the terrible things I've done. I can't receive forgiveness from God because I can't even forgive myself. Listen, to you, God says through Jesus, his grace is bigger and greater than anything you could ever do. Think of who Paul was. Think of the guy that wrote this letter. Maybe you don't know much about him. He was a murderer. In fact, the chances are quite strong that he had murdered a number of the relatives of those who were the original recipients of his letters. How can Paul live with himself? How can someone that bad forgive himself? How can he be free? It's because he knows that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He knows that Jesus has taken all his guilt away through his death, and it's entirely from God's undeserved favor, from grace. You're never too bad for grace. The second direction is that some of you probably think you're too good for grace. Now, this is very subtle, and religious people do it every day. Some of you think grace is for you when you're at your lowest, but otherwise you're doing okay. (laughs) Some of you live as if God approves of you, generally speaking, because you're a decent rule follower or because your credits outweigh your debits. Leave the grace for the murderers like Paul. Leave the grace for the thieves. Leave the grace for the child traffickers. I'm a decent Republican, conservative, long-time, church-going, moral guy or gal. And I'm raising my kids that way too, dadgummit. To you, God says through Jesus, you have not yet seen the depth of your need. Your bondage to sin is much more radical than you care to admit. And it manifests not as running away from God, but as self-righteousness in front of God and in front of all of us. But there's grace for you too. That's why the gospel is such good news. God rescues all sinners, any who come to him in Jesus Sinners who sin by running far away from God in overt rebellion and sinners who sin by trying to stay close to God through self-righteous, proud effort and religiosity. For any and all, he says only this, trust in what I have done. Look at my work for you. Believe in my love. Rest in the work of Jesus. Receive the gift of the spirit. Let me carry you. Last thing, for what purpose? For what purpose does God rescue us? This will be quick. One more thing before we finish. I told you it was, the the, the first point was the longest. Uh, What's God's purpose in all this? Why does God want to do this is the ultimate question. What does he want us to see? Remember what I said at the beginning. This entire text is an outburst. An outburst of praise. And that's what God wants. He wants us to revel And delight in his grace and worship him because that's just who he is. God does all this so the entire universe can see what he's like. What his heart is all about. And the entire universe, including all of us, can can glorify and enjoy him because of who he is. Look look at how Paul highlights it. Verse 6, God does all this to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, to the praise 
of his glory. God's great desire is for us to know him and all of his dazzling and radiant love, mercy, and kindness. And as we know him, he wants our hearts and minds to burst out just like Paul's did as he wrote this really long sentence from a dark prison 2,000 years ago. Blessed be God. Is your heart bursting? Blessed be God who has given us every spiritual blessing free of charge in Christ. Let's pray.